Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to have you aboard today. We're happy to welcome Jeff Luce to the program. Jeff, this is your first time on the show. Let's, uh, first of all, find out just a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure, yeah. Thanks for having me, Brian. Um, I am a policy assistant for the Conservative Coalition for Climate Solutions, or C3 Solutions, as we like to call ourselves. Uh, we're a 501c3 nonprofit uh, that's focused on advancing free market solutions to energy and environment and different climate challenges. All right. Well, I'm, I'm glad to have you on the show. We've got a great topic to discuss. Um, this is an article that you had written for townhall.com. Build Back Better Will Fail to Reach Climate Goals. And I got to say, Jeff, I know that uh, the Democrats in Congress have been working very, very hard to get that uh, that funding or that Build Back Better infrastructure bill passed. Where do they stand on this? I've, I've kind of uh, I thought it was maybe uh, on the back burner, if not uh, off the stove entirely. But it sounds like they're not going to give up. What, where, where does this bill stand? Sure. Yeah. Um, as of now, it is, in a sense, off the stove. Um it wasn't mentioned in President Biden's State of the Union address. And after the State of the Union speech, uh, Joe Manchin, the Democrat from West Virginia, who's the lone holdout on the bill, uh, he said, and I quote, nothing's changed. Um, so it is looking like the prospects of passing Build Back Better it, as a $1.5 trillion or $2 trillion uh, piece of legislation. It looks like that's pretty much dead. Um, although... Uh, Senate leader Chuck Schumer did write in a Dear Colleague letter today that Democrats later this week during their uh, retreat, they may start renewing talks about reconciliation and passing smaller packages with climate and energy. Okay, and let's let's talk climate change. I mean, energy is one thing. I think we're all kind of feeling at the pump right now what uh, what rising energy costs are, are doing to us. But talk to me about climate and what exactly are the are the Democrats who are pushing this bill promoting? Or do they believe we can spend our way into changing the global climate? Uh, it sure seems that way. Yeah. Um, so the climate provisions that were included in the original legislation that passed the House but haven't passed the Senate. Uh, included $200 billion for EV tax credits, um, which that's definitely noble. We we should probably want more EVs on the road so long as it's driven by consumer choice. Um, but 90% of these tax credits go to the highest income earners. Um, and then there was also $60 billion included for targeted wind and solar tax credits, which again, uh, we should all we should be all for expanding renewable energy in the United States so long as it's driven primarily by market forces. When, when you refer to the to uh, solar and wind as mature energy technologies, help me understand what that means. They, is it, they've been around long enough that people know that they work. It's not like, oh, we're experimenting with something new. Sure, yeah. Um, what I meant by that is that the price comparison of solar and wind has fallen dramatically. It's, it's now cost comparable with fossil fuels, which is another source of energy that receives subsidies that probably shouldn't have it. Both, both fossil fuels and renewables are, are mature at this point, and the subsidies that the federal government's funding are, are long outdated and are, are really um, harmful to emerging technologies that don't receive, receive the same uh, preferential treatment in the tax code. Interesting. I, you know, by the way, I'm with you. I'm on board with the idea that the the free market actually uh, would would provide much more incentive 
for people who are looking to reduce their carbon footprint. And, and best of all, they do it to voluntarily. I don't know. Um, I, I don't know if I want to empower the, the same people who have kind of choked our, our energy production. It sounds like uh, this kind of spending would, would essentially give them job security or benefit them. Do, do special interests benefit from, from this proposed funding as well? Uh, yeah, special interests definitely do. Um, and I think you're starting to see a shift also in the Biden administration with focusing on union-specific um, manufacturers. Uh, there were provisions that included, you know, additional benefits for union-specific EV manufacturers such as G, uh, GM and Ford, um, excluding Tesla, who isn't union but is definitely one of the leaders in the industry. Um, and then you're also seeing with wind and solar, uh, you're seeing protectionist measures taken in favor of domestic manufacturers, which ultimately actually impact consumers. Um, so you're seeing with solar tariffs. Uh, they've the tariffs that have been imposed on foreign solar companies or solar production, I should say, um, have actually increased costs for consumers and decreased investments um, for solar energy in the United States. What kind of talk do you hear, if any, about uh, you know uh, the next generation nuclear um, reactors? Yeah, so there's been funding at the Department of Energy. Um, there's also been private sector involvement, such as Bill Gates' TerraPower, uh, that's planning on building a small modular reactor uh, on top of a retired coal plant in Wyoming. And production for that's supposed to start around 2028, about. Um, so there's definitely a lot of uh, emerging technologies with small modular reactors that are really exciting. Um they negate some of the safety concerns that the traditional fission reactors that we have have now. Although the safety concerns, I would say, are unwarranted. Um, nuclear is a very safe energy option. Uh, but we're starting to see more and more companies and startups uh, pursue small modular reactors. Although we are seeing uh, the implementation uh, slow down a bit by outdated regulations. So the current nuclear regulations are very prescriptive instead of performance-based. So they favor older fission reactors, although even then it, it takes years to site and permit and get everything done. So I think reforming nuclear regulations would enable entrepreneurs and companies to invest more and get more of these next-generation nuclear reactors up, up on, um, on site. I don't think most people would uh, would object to finding alternatives to fossil fuels, but um, I, I have to ask you, Jeff, um, is is it realistic what what is being proposed in terms of uh, you know we're trying to uh, reverse climate change? Does this mean that uh, the Democrats and and those who are working with them in the environment in the environmental lobby are trying to uh, essentially turn their backs on uh, on fossil fuels as quickly as possible? Yeah, so um, I think maybe they had intended to do that. I think we're seeing the repercussions of that in Ukraine, um, you know, with Germany phasing out all nuclear and starting to push for all renewables, which, again, we should definitely favor diversity in energy in an energy portfolio so long as it's driven by consumers. Um, but, yeah, you saw Germany um, phase out all coal and nuclear, push to renewables, but then as a baseload to, uh, fuel source, they had to import Russian natural gas, which, of course, Putin weaponized to fund his invasion of Ukraine. Um, so I think we're starting to see a bit more of energy realism, especially in Europe, uh, 
with Germany starting to open up or at least extend some of their nuclear power plants. Um, and you're also starting to see the EU recognize natural gas as a green investment. Um, so I think what we need to do now in the United States is, is look for ways to increase production, uh, such as opening up or permitting the Keystone Pipeline, for example, or uh, reducing regulations such as the Jones Act, which impose a lot of costs for transportation of natural gas and oil in the United States, which can honestly make it more cost competitive to import it from Russia. So I, I have to ask this, and it's, I guess it's probably because I'm a skeptic who loves to drive a gas car and barbecue and otherwise, you know, to create greenhouse sure. gases. But um, <clears throat> I have to wonder if, uh, if first of all, if the proposals on the part of uh, those Democrats who want to, you know, reverse climate change, if that's even something that can be accomplished. And secondly, is it something that, that can be accomplished without uh, inserting more government into every aspect of our lives? Sure. Yeah. Um, as far as reversing climate change, that's that's a very global problem. Uh, currently, the United States emits about 14 percent of total global emissions. Uh, China is right around 28, 29 percent. So if we really want to reverse climate change, which I, I think is doable, it's doable to get to net zero, at least. Um, we really have to focus on international markets and emerging markets where the majority of future emissions will come from. Um and in terms of energy production, I think American fossil fuels can play a really key role in that. So, for example, just uh, import having Europe rely on American LNG versus Russian LNG would be a great environmental move, a great economic move. Wow. Uh, it's, uh, I, I think the amount of spending that we saw in response to the uh, coronavirus pandemic, uh, you know, in response to stimulus and now this is, is simply mind blowing. And uh, at, at any point, is there anybody urging caution besides uh, Manchin and uh, who is it, Sinema? Yeah, I mean, uh, several Senate Republicans are as well. Uh, I think that's definitely smart. Inflation plays a p- key role in daily lives. It also plays a key role in uh, financing the energy transition. You know, higher inflation costs make production costs higher, makes it less economically viable to transition to lower carbon um, energy sources. So I think it's it's definitely an important task that we reduce inflation and look towards private sector uh, involvement. We are talking with Jeff Luce. He is a Young Voices contributor and policy assistant to the Conservative Coalition for Climate Solutions, or C3 Solutions. Where can they find you on social media? Sure, yeah. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, not much of a Twitter or Instagram buff, but if you want to follow C3 Solutions on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, it's at C3 Solutions News. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. And we are very happy to welcome Young Voices contributor Roy Matthews to the program. Roy, this is your first time on board with us, but uh, we'd love to know just a little bit more about you and what you do. Well, thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I'm a currently a public policy associate at the Alliance for Innovation and Infrastructure, which is a think tank that focuses on fostering innovative solutions to climate, transportation, energy, and infrastructure-related public policy issues. Uh, we do research and educational content for everyone from policymakers to industry experts to just the general public. And in my spare time, I like to 
write research and read all I can about what I think is the most interesting part of the world, uh, Eastern Europe, Central Asia, and the wider post-Soviet space. Well, it's certainly getting more interesting, even as we speak. And I'm looking at a very timely article that you penned for RealClearWorld.com. The CSTO looks out for its members, so must NATO. And I'll admit, I'm, I'm quite familiar with NATO. I had never heard of CSTO before. Would you mind um, giving us an explanation? What, what does that refer to? No, I, so I first learned about the CSTO only a couple of years ago in college, but um, it stands for the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which is basically a military alliance that Russia founded with several post-Soviet uh, states like Armenia, Kazakhstan, and others to essentially keep them in in Russia's security orbit. Um, it's very much functions like NATO in that it's a collective well, collective security alliance, um, meaning an attack. If one country were to fall under attack, then that would trigger other members of the alliance to contribute to their defense. And it's never really been a taken seriously as an organization. It's mainly just been a political tool for Russia to keep these countries more dependent on it and in its orbit. Um, but recently in Kazakhstan, uh, they intervened uh, pretty successfully, unfortunately, in uh, shooting dead about 130 people that were protesting against the government uh, because the government increased fuel prices and the government is not exactly a democracy in Kazakhstan. Um, and it was pretty terrible, uh, pretty terrible um Pretty terrible event. So this this is not any kind of an agreement that could be compared to, say, the Warsaw Pact as far as, you know, they, they were all like one kind of, uh, I guess that was the, collect, the collection for so many years. I grew up under the Cold War of Warsaw Pact versus NATO, you know, and both, uh, you know, there to kind of contain one another. Um, so two quick questions for you then, Roy. First of all, um, when the Iron Curtain fell, when the Soviet Union fell apart, did the, why didn't the rationale for NATO likewise come apart at that time because wasn't their goal to hold back you know the the warsaw pact well it was yeah and um i can recall i believe uh there were even talks about russia joining nato about russia becoming either a partner and being put on track uh for nato membership just as to sort of you know hash out the last i guess great schism within european politics um and nato didn't really go away um, just because the sort of uh, collective security allowed the European powers to, frankly, spend money on other things. Um, most European countries that did not have to deal with a threat um, didn't actually meet the 2% threshold for defense spending. And so they could pour that money into other sectors, you know, making a, uh, a stronger economy, um, in, investing in infrastructure, or any other pet project. So it was really convenient for the European powers, but you know, unfortunately, uh, threats have a way of coming back, and the Baltic states and several of the countries that are closer to Russia, in fact, uh, have actually been consistently meeting um, that defense expenditure because they have to deal with, well, a uh, rather aggressive neighbor. Um, so NATO still has its uses, but unfortunately, it is even more uh, even more sorely needed now because of uh, recent Russian aggression. So how many members are there then in, in the CSTO at, at this point? Is it, are, does it compare in any way with NATO, or is it like a, a poor man's version of, of NATO for the Russians? Not in terms of size. Um, some members have entered and exited, just depending on whether they see um, the organization will serve their interests or not. Um, Russia generally dominates the organization. It's very much the 
a country that dispatches troops to wherever it's uh, or whoever asks for them. Uh, the Kazakhstani president, um, Tokayev, uh, requested these troops because his security forces were sort of losing control of the situation because people were rioting. Um, but it's not it's not at all comparable to NATO. It is sort of a poor man's NATO. That's a great um, a great way to look at it. Um, but there have been several, um, I guess, civil wars and outbreaks of violence in members like Kyrgyzstan in 2010 and Tajikistan in as recently as 2021. And the CSTO essentially said, no, we're not going to really we're not going to deal with that. Um, so this sort of recent this quick, speedy intervention in Kazakhstan really took a lot of people by surprise because most people didn't take it at all seriously. Um, so it's definitely I unfortunately said that it might be a precursor that um, Putin wants to is more comfortable with using military forces elsewhere. And uh, I don't like to be right 100 percent of the time, but I kind of wish I was wrong in this scenario. <laughs> it's it's fascinating for me because really I um, while, while I respect what NATO was doing during the Cold War, um, I've wondered over the years since then, since the uh, you know Berlin Wall came down and so forth. Uh, whether NATO had outlived its use, its usefulness. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate here for, for a moment, Roy. Um, Go for it. Russia does not like the idea of NATO being expanded to its, you know, right to its its own national borders. And it seems that to NATO, this is just my opinion, I think they've, they've been kind of uh, tone deaf in, in hearing Russia's concerns about its national security. Is there is there a double standard at play here, or can, can we make the case that, well... NATO can be trusted, but uh, but Russia, for these reasons, can't. No, no, no. That's a terrific point. No, I honestly have struggled with that a lot. Um, most, I mean, the one thing I would say to that is most of these, you know, most of these countries aren't being forced to join NATO. They're doing it off of their own free will, state sovereignty. If the people want to vote on NATO ascension, then that's great. They should be able to do that. Um, the sort of Putin has said that, you know, they don't want NATO to expand up to its borders, that there is this sort of informal, formal agreement. It's a little murky there. Um, I looked into that a little bit. Uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, the last premier of the Soviet Union, um, stated that there was no agreement uh, after the Soviet Union fell that the NATO wouldn't expand. Um, there were some declassified documents that were released that showed in 1997 Boris Yeltsin, the Russian president, repeatedly made overtures to President Clinton about, you know, limiting NATO expansion. And Bill Clinton said essentially that, you know, I can't control that. I can't tell another sovereign nation, sorry, you can't join NATO because the Russians said so. Um, and quite frankly, with the all the, I mean, all the recent events now, um, NATO's purpose for, you know, Western Europe's security, again, like you said, Western Europe isn't facing any major security threats, um, but the Baltic states, uh, Norway, Ukraine, all these other people that have to deal with uh, Russian cyber attacks, disinformation. Um, Russia likes to uh, project um, propaganda to Russian speakers in the Baltic states um, to sort of undermine trust. I don't even know if I want to go into the twenty six, the whole 2016 controversy, but when folks – when folks are having to deal with this aggression, NATO is a lot more prevalent and more um, useful to them. But no, I completely, I completely hear where you're coming from, and most Americans, I think, agree with Donald Trump when they, when he said that, you know, why are we supporting these countries that aren't even meeting their requirements for NATO membership in the first place? Okay, we got about one minute left, Roy. I just, I have to ask you, um, prognosticate for me. Um, 
Does NATO continue to expand? Is it likely Ukraine is going to become a part of NATO? Uh, where do you see this going with, with Russia? Are they likely to pull other countries in, you know, on, on their behalf? That's that's tough. Um, NATO has applied for EU and NATO membership, but with the ongoing war, it's tough to say whether that will happen. Um, I mean, you mentioned that you mentioned that you grew up during the Cold War and I didn't. But uh, West Germany was a NATO member, even though the Soviets occupied a third of its territory. Um, so NATO isn't sort of a, a static, opaque organization that. You know, everything is very clear cut for membership. Um, so Ukraine could potentially join. Um, I don't think that right now that, that would be a smart option because Russia could just escalate the violence even more. Um, and with the sanctions that are now being imposed for Russia, uh, I think you could see more expansion of the CSTO or get, have them grow closer to China. Okay. I'm going to link to your article in the show notes here again. We are talking with Roy Matthews. He is a contributor for Young Voices. Roy, where can people find you on social media? Uh, Twitter, I am at yourboyroy98 with a Y. Um, that's where I'm most active. to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We are happy to welcome Lily Tara. She is a Young Voices contributor. And Lily, I would greatly appreciate it if you could uh, tell us just a little bit more about who you are and what makes you tick. Uh, hi, guys. Uh, my name is Lillian. I am a student at the University of Virginia studying Chinese and Persian. Uh, but I do have a very deep interest in economic and social policy, especially free market oriented policy. And uh, I'm hoping to pursue a career in the think tank community in that domain, possibly academia. And I love talking about these issues. Well, you're in the right state. If, if you're looking for some optimism, Virginia turned kind of a nice corner uh, last November when they elected Glenn Youngkin. Uh, first of all, give me uh, give me some some ideas. What did that mean for the state of Virginia to to elect uh, Youngkin as governor? I think the first thing that I realized was that it meant people cared about us outside of Virginia. Um, and I, I really heard mostly about the Youngkin uh, win from other sources outside of the state. And I didn't really realize the the depths of this significance in terms of what it means for the Republicans, especially when since they haven't won since 2009 statewide. And it's interesting to observe the shifts that have come in northern Virginia, especially where I uh, was born and raised, because you see this development of of the parent-teacher rift. And that's something that's really causing a lot of friction within the political base. And you see the lines being drawn in a way that pits the voters against the state in a pretty unique way and a sensitive issue, which is our children. Yeah, I... I think education was uh, was uh, rightly credited as that was the tipping point that uh, that brought Youngkin into power. And talk to me about some of the the uh, proposals that he has put forth uh, to you know regarding um, education, and and then we can focus in on what uh, what you point out may be his most important aspect of, of education policy. Uh, in all honesty, uh, what I've seen is that the majority of the most uh, highlighted cases where Youngkin has really won the support of parents has been things that are actually fairly superficial um, in that you have masks, which may not seem superficial, but relative to 
content debates they might be. Um, a lot of uh, revisions, they have um, the superintendents looking over the different critical race theory um, biases that are being introduced in curriculum, supposedly, and that also does have its own bit of subjectivity. Uh, there's There was one executive order that referenced an issue in Loudoun County where several key details of a case regarding sexual assault for a student were hidden from the parents. And that was a very, obviously, a very emotionally charged one. Um, those are kind of the main ones with the pandemic and with critical race theory. I'd say those two are the big ones. But because they're so difficult to address and they're such big issues by design, um, there, there's actually not that much that Young can do in that regard without overstepping his, his boundaries, I think. So you mentioned in your article that uh, one bound or one um, policy suggestion in particular uh, involves charter schools. Let's uh, let's flesh that out a little bit. Uh, what are these charter schools and 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 why is this such an important and, and again far reaching policy compared to the others? It's very interesting because on Youngkin's page, when he discusses his issues, there's a there's a couple on education, and at the very bottom of the list, there's invest however many million in charter schools across the state. And to me, this was overwhelmingly the most important thing that he wanted to do. And and immediately, I can tell this is probably going to be the least popular at the at least the most neglected. Um, and I think this is because charter schools are are a very long sighted in investment. They they set the ground for competition and innovation within the education system in a way that one has a lot of enemies to begin with, but two won't necessarily yield results the way a, a mandate or an executive order would or banning mandates. And that to me is the issue with a, a lot of public policy, especially in education, because you have to take a long time to, to measure the results of any policy. And you have to let these lottery systems work, these students move, the demographics to shift, and you won't see the test scores change immediately. You have to follow these children over the course of however many years. Um, and this is, again, as I said before, an issue that has many, many uh, political enemies. You're essentially fighting against the in, entire education establishment, many, many uni unionized teachers who whose entire career is guaranteed to them who are guaranteed to get money as they progress in age, but not necessarily in competence, as some of us may know. And this is something that I think that if parents genuinely want to be involved in the education of their children, they should consider because the choice that they have and the flexibility that charter schools allow for, for parents and their kids is really something much bigger than any single mandate that um, or executive order that Youngkin himself could put in. So is it safe to say that to the this would actually allow the people um, with the most skin in the game, so to speak, to, to have more say in uh, in how they go about educating their kids? Fair enough. Yes. Well, I think part of the problem is that right now the people with the most skin in the game are the people are the unions and the teachers who have so much mm. political clout. So yeah. you could argue that maybe we need to be making it so that parents and their kids have a greater stake in the game because it seems to be that they're outsourcing the job of education to a group of specialized licensed professionals who maybe don't know their kids as well as they might. That's a, no, that's a very good distinction. I, I, I appreciate that. And again, this comes back to why did Youngkin get to get elected in the first place? I remember there was at least one point where uh, was it uh, McAuliffe who was was governor? 
talked about, well, parents shouldn't have this say in education. I'm paraphrasing, but that was the rallying cry. That was like, remember the Maine. You know, I mean, people got out and, and really went to the polls because of that. Now, tell me about some of the hurdles that charter schools face. You, you mentioned in your article, nearly all of them are political. What, what do they look like? I think right off the bat, one of the most obvious ones is that to establish a charter school, you would need permission from the very school district that you're trying to compete against. And obviously, by definition, that's just not going to happen. And you see this um, you, you see this in that charter schools get results. And so they're a threat to the current system. And anyone whose livelihood is tied up with the current education system, the teachers, the administrators, the bureaucrats involved, they're they're going to be resistant. And we've seen this where a lot of the anti-charter school uh, research that has been done has been done by very vested interests in the education system. And I think it's not an emotional enough issue that parents will rally around in a way that would provoke um, actual change. And I think the biggest issue is just showing that this is a viable alternative, which maybe isn't as heated as we would like it to be to generate that kind of result, but nudging people towards that direction. Do you foresee that uh, the developments of charter schools or uh, continued success among charter schools, for that matter, could this open the door to even more discussion about... um, I got to choose my words carefully because these could be trigger words for like teachers, union members, uh, privatizing larger portions of the school system, separating school and state. Uh, Is that that too extreme or does any of that ever come up in discussion? That's something I absolutely advocate for. But you're right in that you have to be careful because immediately the first charge that you get is, oh, well, you care about profit more about our own children. Or can you put a price on the education of our of our future generations? And so I think the issue is that you have to, especially when you're addressing more emotional uh, parents and teachers, put the emphasis on the needs of the children. Right. Like we really are trying to think of the children. And it just so happens that a system that is more adaptable to their needs that actually lets even let's teachers discipline more or let's teachers be sorted out by competence in a way that current that the current system doesn't these are things that will ultimately benefit the the children and that is the emotional issue that really people need to get get ourselves geared towards for people who may use emotional arguments as a counterpoint now i've heard the saying you've probably heard this too um one of the the battle cries for for advocates of reform in education is fund the students, not the systems. Um, Does that carry any weight with you? Absolutely. It's a bit of a it's a bit of a free market truism and a school choice truism, but absolutely holds up because you really start to lose sight of the of the individual students when you're looking at the education system as one massive system that perfectly serves to to take inputs of children and mold them into adequate citizens. And I think anyone who has passed through the public education system knows this not to be the case. (laughs) And so once we view the individual results, we hold ourselves very, very accountable to the students who we see that we're failing. On a personal level, we know we're failing, but we kind of forget when we're looking at broad-based social policy. Okay. Well, I love your article. Again, this is published in Roanoke.com. We will include a link in the show notes. And uh, your point is well taken. There are some very sensational topics out there that are sure, you know, crowd generators and attention grabbers, but they may not have the kind of uh, lasting impact that this particular policy with the charter schools would have. Where can people access uh, your writings? Where can they find you on social media? 
I am in the process of making more social media. Um, you can find me on Twitter, which I believe is Lil Tara underscore X. Um, and I will continue to be writing. I'll hopefully be at Cato this summer and uh, I will be more involved in that community as well. Okay, so uh, Lil Tara, T-A-R-A. Just want to make sure we got the spell. Underscore X. Underscore X. Okay. Lillian Tara, thank you so much for being on Moving Forward with Young Voices. Great to meet you. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much. Love to meet you as well. Have a great day. Welcome back. This is our final segment of Moving Forward with Young Voices today. And we are happy to welcome Daniel J. Smith. We'll call him Dan. He is uh, joining us as a contributor to Young Voices. And Dan, tell us just a little bit more about uh, who you are and what you do. Yeah, of course. I appreciate you you having me on. I'm a professor of economics at Middle Tennessee State University and the director of the Political Economy Research Institute. Um, So we focus on, you know, studying the relationship between market economies and the human well-being. So that's what I'm doing. We write op-eds. We do research that has actual practical policy relevance. And we try to to add to discussions going on uh, in current uh, policy uh, debates. Well, we've got a fun policy to discuss here. And, and this is actually a topic that has come up a couple of different times through, through various Young Voices contributors. And that is, uh, there, there is kind of a regulatory campaign, uh, I would say war, but that phrase is kind of spoken for right now in other areas, but uh, against vaping. And I was surprised to see your article on Real Clear Policy that talks about tobacco's surprising partners in stubbing out vaping. And I'd, I would love for you to put some skin on that for us and help us understand uh, t- tobacco. Now, are, are they involved in trying to, to help vaping or to, to get their competitors you know, out of the picture? <laughs> well, it's a little complicated uh, when, you, when you unpack it. But the, the main gist of what's going on is, is tobacco companies see vaping as a threat to their bottom line. Um, and so rather than trying to adjust their production methods, try to, to meet the, the changing preferences of consumers that are more concerned about you know switching to a, a relatively safer product, what they're doing is trying to find ways to hamper uh, access to electronic cigarettes through government regula- regulatory agencies. Okay. <sighs> you know... I'm not trying to recommend vaping as, you know, it's it's the it's like health food or something. But I, I do know a number of friends who have been longtime smokers, and that was the bridge that they could walk over to get away from smoking and actually wean themselves, you know, from, from smoking entirely. So I, I'm not trying to present it as a panacea, but I've seen with my own eyes that uh, for some people that that is kind of a neat option. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is where the, the crux of the argument against vaping comes from, is, is that regulatory agencies are looking at vaping products and saying, well, those aren't entirely safe. Well, neither are a lot of products that are already that we already consume, ribeye steaks, scotch, cigarettes, yep. traditional cigarettes. <laughs> Basically so the, the, the good question, things in life. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. And we really have to look at, at is 
relatively. Are they relatively a, a safer product than tobac- conventional tobacco? And, and the absolute answer is, is yes, from all the medical evidence we've seen, that if you switch to vaping, that you're, 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 you're far likelier to, to avoid some of the, the worst negative health consequences that come from smoking traditional tobacco. And the question is, do we want to offer that option to consumers or do we want to prevent consumers from having access to a healthier option and, and live in kind of a Pollyannish world where we just assume we all people just quit smoking? Well, they're not quitting smoking. So let's at least have this other option that's relatively safer available for them. Talk to me about how big tobacco, which is very heavily regulated, has learned to work with and, and perhaps even influence and maybe nudge those uh, regulatory powers. Yeah, so Big Tobacco has a long history of working with government regulatory bo- uh, bodies. Um, it's known in, in the economics literature as regulatory capture, and that's a big fancy word for just meaning that the regulated industry gets embedded with the, the regulators. And this happens through a couple different ways. Um, for the Center for Tobacco uh, for Tobacco Products, one of the ways that they're embedded with tobacco industry is that they're entirely funded by a t- tax on tobacco products. So if they, in fact, consumers do switch in mass to um, vaping products, they would actually lose funding for their own jobs. Um, another way that they're embedded, you know, that um, the regulated industries such as tobacco get embedded with regulators is by offering jobs to the regulators after they uh, are done with their government uh, gigs. So it's very common for, for them to say, hey, you're regulating us today. And then, by the way, you know, we have this job coming up in, in a couple of years that would be perfect for someone like you. It pays really well. It's a consulting job. So it's a, it's a way for them to kind of wink, wink, um, promise a job um, in return for ensuring that the regulation uh, is, is enacted in a way that at least benefits to the extent possible the regulated industry. Now, some people would see that, well, if they're very heavily regulated, they must be at a terrible disadvantage. Talk to me about uh, uh, the, the major advantages that Big Tobacco enjoys because of this relationship with the regulators. Uh, how does this help them against their competitors? Yeah, so the, the the main way is that they're able to use their financial clout and relationships with the regulated uh, regulators to 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 prevent tobacco new vaping products from being approved. So there's been a huge onerous regulatory process put in place for any new electronic cigarettes being approved. Um, it's costing lots of money and lots of time, and very few approvals are coming through. The the uh, the the regulations seem to, to to change you know on an ad hoc basis it's very confusing and complex uh for these uh companies to get their products on the shelf for for consumers that actually want to consume uh vaping products um lo and behold the uh you know two of the vaping companies that are owned at least in part by big tobacco have received regulatory approval but all the other ones have, have found it really hard to get past that regulatory barrier imagine that <laughs> how, how exactly what you would what a, expect what yes. a coincidence yes <laughs> so where where does this go from here do, do the vaping companies have to learn to play the game and and become more involved with lobbyists and, and you know the workings of the system or you know is, is there the possibility for a separation from big tobacco and and those regulators i i don't see the regulatory state to pairing itself back anytime soon do you 
No, I, I de- definitely don't. And, and unfortunately, the the historic, you know, what we look at history in other industries is when uh, new industries are at this point, they oftentimes just jump in the lobbying game and, okay, now they're going to, you know, hire a lobbying firm on K Street and they're going to pay their political dues to the, the, the political elites and then they're going to get their regulatory uh, favors eventually. Um, but of course, you know, it, that's not ideal. You know, it, 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 you know, what we'd really like to see is regulators um, get out of bed, so to speak, with the big tobacco and, um, you know, especially eliminate some of this this unnecessary regulation that is clearly benefiting big tobacco companies uh, and disadvantaging uh, uh, vaping companies. Uh, it's it's clear cronyism at play right now. And, and to the extent that we could just eliminate um that uh, consumers would be better off um, in, in the long run. So, um, does there does it look like there's ever going to be a time where adults will be allowed to be adults again, or <laughs> is is the regulatory apparatus pretty much with us to stay? Yeah, it, it, it's kind of kind of nice to imagine a world where adults are free to make their own decisions as long as they don't infringe upon the, the rights of other people. Um, and that's what I, exactly what I think this should be. I think we should leave this in the hands of, of consumers. The evidence is out there. You know, people can can see the evidence. You've seen it with your own eyes anecdotally. The, the empirical studies are out there. Um, allow them to, to sift through the evidence, even in consultation in consultation with their, their physicians, um, and make the appropriate choice that is right for their own, their own circumstances. Government should not be involved in that decision, especially a government that's being bought out by big tobacco companies. No, good, good point. Now, just to, to put some skin on this, too, again, in, in the idea of um, how big is big tobacco? Um, when, when we talk about the, the kinds of revenues that they're enjoying, even though I know smoking has been on the outs for some time, you know, um, it's, it's no longer glorified in movies and so forth. You can hardly find a place to do it publicly anymore. But but there's still a lot of money at stake, isn't there? I mean, what kind of revenues are they looking at? Yeah, so what's at stake is, is is a lot of money in revenues. It's enough that it justifies spending um, over about $20 million in lobbying expenditures just in 2021. And that's actually fallen down from the heyday of, of big tobacco. And then they've registered uh, around $3 million in campaign donations in the same year. So that they're clearly defending a, a, a huge you know stock of, of revenues that they've generated and they want to protect that uh, against uh, at all costs so whenever they've you know drive down the road and see a tobacco shop is now a tobacco and vaping shop uh, that, that, that hurts them in their bottom line and they're really concerned about it and they're doing everything possible including engaging in, in, in explicit cronyism to prevent that from happening all right we got about one minute left here just one quick question um, do the vaping companies uh, do they still catch a lot of heat for um, promoting their product to, to kids I know for a while that was the concern Joe camels to get kids to smoke but uh, do do the vaping companies face that same kind of uh, accusation yeah I think that's that's one of the the other arguments that people make against uh, vaping companies is well what these get in the hands of children but of course traditional cigarettes are getting in the hands of, of children as well and we need to do everything possible to ensure that that this product is only available for adults but I think that can equally apply to conventional cigarettes and vaping and it doesn't uh, privilege one or the other uh, and it, it certainly doesn't justify privileging one or the other in the terms of government regulatory power. Okay, again, we are talking with Daniel J. Smith, the director of Policy Economic Research Institute at Middle Tennessee State University, as well as a Young Voices contributor. Where can people find you, either online or on social media? 
Yeah, the easiest way is at SmithDanJ1 at, on Twitter, or you can just Google Daniel Smith at Middle Tennessee State University, and I'll pop up. I have a, a website, um, but I'm happy to, to interact with any, anyone out there that uh, wants to follow up with me. Hey, thanks for being on the show today. Of course, it was a pleasure. Thank you.